Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Karen Lee Rigg, who is based in London. Karen is currently an engineering lead at Permutive. Karen Lee Rigg, welcome to Maintainable. We're so delighted to speak with you. Thank you for having me. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few characteristics of a healthy and well-maintained software code base? So there are a few things. I mean, I think the one thing that I really appreciate having worked in a lot of legacy code bases is really good unit tests. And that's actually quite rare to see it in legacy code bases as well, because I feel like testing itself has not really been a major priority in the industry. And it's only been relatively recently, for me at least, that it's it's kind of come to the forefront. But having really well-written tests is quite important. But in order to have really well-written tests, you also need to have a very well-specified domain. So, you know, if, if you have people who are understanding the domain and they've designed it in such a way that actually matches the business process, then generally that's that's how you you succeed when it comes to legacy code in general. Some of the problems that I've seen in the past have been where, you know, you write code to replace a physical process, which generally, I haven't seen that work well in the past. I remember there's a name for it. I just don't remember what the name is off the top of my head. Good tests, clean architecture is one thing. I find that um, one of the key bits to creating long-term maintainable software is having someone actually anchor it. So a lot of the times when you've got projects where you know the majority of the original people have left, you don't remember what the original architectural decisions were, then that's usually when things kind of get lost. So having documentation as well, probably not in terms of like code comments, which can be useful in certain situations when you've got quite a complex domain, but having architectural decision records is very useful. There's a whole other set of problems that come with that as well. But generally, you know, it's, it's a combination of knowledge, documentation, domain modeling, and testing. Interesting. And you're, when you say that's helpful to have someone there or some documentation that speaks to help anchor it, are you referring to like visual kind of overviews of how the architecture looks like, uh, a lot of written documentation in terms of the the decisions behind the rationale. I know you, you'd also touched on the, there's also some challenges with that. I'm assuming maybe that it's related to keeping that updated. Right. So what I mean by anchoring a code base is um, generally, if you want to have a really clean code base, ideally you've got two people anchoring it. So when I say anchor, I mean some in two people who have very aligned visions in terms of Uh, what code quality looks like, in terms of what good architecture looks like, in terms of what clean code looks like. Ideally, you have two. In the worst case, having at least one person owning that is is really helpful. Having someone who who was there from the very beginning is also helpful because they have that full context of what the code actually does. But, you know, ideally, it's someone who has experience in maintaining really good code bases. You know, the, the thing with maintainable code is code that's written that makes sense. And that's actually something that a lot of people take for granted, where it's really hard to write intuitive code, where you can look at a piece of code and say, okay, I completely, totally understand what that does. It looks easy because, you know, it's designed for you to understand it, for anyone to come and understand it. But actually writing it is very, very difficult. And a lot of that is, you know, when you're in your own head, things obviously make sense. But how do you write code in such a way that everyone else understands your thought process? 
And do you think a lot of that comes to good naming of how you're building when you're writing things or having, um, I don't know what programming languages you're working in, but having very, being verbose with your programming approach or code commenting? How do, what do you, have you seen work well? So I have a personal preference for verbose code, right? I'm, I'm kind of in that camp that believes that if you need to write a comment for code, then you could have named your variables better and you could have named your methods better. I'm very, very strongly in that camp. Although kind of in my, in my company now, so we work with a variety of different uh, stacks. Um, the one that I kind of look at the most is probably TypeScript, but we've got Haskell, Kotlin, Swift, Scala, TypeScript. And what I find is um, if you've got a particularly complex domain, then that's actually the time when I would allow comments or say that it's actually good to have comments where there are certain things that happen that you know someone coming in might not necessarily have the domain knowledge. So that's when I would use comments. Otherwise, if it's something pretty straightforward, if you've got like, oh, you know, I've got a sign up process to have this website that does this thing and it's very easy for people to understand, then I would generally shy away from comments. And it's really about, you know, there's obviously both ends of the spectrum of not verbose and too verbose. And there's always that, that balance in between. But, you know, it's a matter of knowing your audience as well. Like who are the developers on your team? Who are the developers that you're likely to hire? And there is definitely that middle ground of, you know, enough detail to be very clear on what the code is actually doing, but not too much that people get, you know, tired of reading long variable names and method names. What's your take on the metaphor that we often use in the industry, technical debt? Do you use it? Yeah, yeah, technical debt. It's kind of the, the bane of my existence, really. It's one of those things where, you know, there's that balance between delivery pressure and quality, right? And sometimes technical debt is inevitable. Like you have a deadline, you have to push through and you just have to deal with it. In situations like that, I'd say, you know, it's down to the tech lead to make sure that they've got a very strong relationship with whoever's making these, these priority calls and making these delivery deadlines. Ultimately, you know, it's not, always the fault of developers. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is, you know, when people get lazy or take shortcuts and stuff. But a lot of time it's actually an organizational thing where there's a disconnect between engineering and product as an example, or a disconnect between engineering and sales. And, you know, you have salespeople promising things over and over, but without checking with the engineering teams and whether or not it's actually feasible to do in that time. And so, you know, I would say it's largely, it's not just like a, an engineering thing. It's, a business problem, actually, technical debt. I mean, managing technical debt has always been interesting for me. Like, there's always like um, a turning point where the technical debt becomes too much. You know, at the beginning, when you're starting off with a piece of software, um, you might say, oh, like, it's okay, I can afford to take on this piece of technical debt. But the problem is, you know, if you let it build up over time, then that's where you run into problems. And at some point, the technical debt becomes too much that you can't actually move. And it's like, you know, you're, you've got, you're trying to drag a mountain behind you. What do you believe uh, software engineers maybe sometimes get wrong when they're talking about technical debt with those stakeholders? I think the, an, an element of it is about managing expectations. A lot of developers, I think, feel this need to promise really tight deadlines because they they don't want to disappoint. And at that stage, I'd say, you know, it's down to having a tech lead that's experienced enough to see that happening. So for me, you know, if I ask my team for an estimate for when something will get done, I, I go by a general rule of if they say something will get done in one day, I actually budget three days. 
just to kind of be on the safe side. And it's, you know, it's better to under promise and over deliver. With, with technical debt as well, I find it's like, it's like keeping a home clean, right? Like you might have a day where you're, you're tired and you, you know, throw your clothes on, on the, on the table and you say, okay, well, I'll deal with it later. But at some point you do have to deal with it and put it away. Otherwise it just keeps building up over time. So a lot of it is also having um, discipline, making sure the developers are disciplined, making sure the teams are disciplined to make time to do these cleanup tasks um, and pushing back on the business to say, look, you know what, you, you, you've pushed us to deliver too much. We need to take some time to settle the technical debt that we've accumulated. Otherwise, it's just going to hurt us in the long run. And it's about having very clear communication, right? Helping the business to understand you know, what is the price of delivery pressure? I find that when you have very strong communication lines and a very strong like empathy between all the different teams, and that's that's where you you find that sweet spot of, you know, build being able to build in time to keep your keep your house clean. Otherwise, you kind of avoid that. What is it? The broken window theory. Exactly. So that, yeah, that makes sense. And one of the things I'm I'm hearing is that you're seeing a, a clear distinction between say technical debt and those trade offs versus maybe where some developers might label, use the phrasing technical debt around, maybe just code they disagree with, code that they don't understand or something, which may be a level of technical debt, I suppose, as well. It's great. Do you, do you see a clear delineation between legacy code and just code? Like when does, how old does code need to be? Or what, in what scenario does it flip that switch over to be considered legacy? I think code becomes legacy code when people forget why decisions were made and they forget why the code is the way it is. When it gets to a point where people are afraid to change things and people are afraid to make improvements, that's when it becomes legacy code. And so actually, I think it's very possible to prevent code from becoming legacy just by maintaining a really clean code base and having really strong engineering practices. Yeah, I've always been curious if teams struggle with uh, things that were built by someone else a while ago and not really sure, like they're maybe nervous to touch it and break it because there's a lack of test coverage or some documentation, really maybe even not any clarity in whether it's being used. <laughs> so that can be also a challenge. Like, is it, is it actually being used in some, is, is some user in the application interacting with something that actually even triggers it? And so that stuff becomes like, well, let's just not touch it. Or there's like, I think of the fear there is like, that's a, I do think that is a pretty common thing that people might feel about maybe legacy code. But I'm always curious about that if it's just perceived as when it's older code or code that doesn't have test coverage, I think is how Michael Feathers describes it. Yeah, I'm always curious about that. You know, with the transitioning a little bit, what type of work are you doing at Permutive? So Permutive is, uh, we're, we're a startup. And what we've actually done is built a data management platform. And so that's with an ad tech. So when you go on a website and you see ads on the page, there's actually a lot of stuff that happens in the background. You as a user, you get segmented based on the information that um, advertisers have about you. And advertisers will bid for the slots that you see on a screen. So we've basically built a data management platform. But the way that we've done it is um, with privacy as a first-class citizen. So at the moment, um, a lot of other data management platforms where you know, you're browsing the internet, you know, I'm sure people will know about the third party cookie debate, where you're being tracked across the internet. It's a massive invasion of your privacy. And, you know, permanently, we believe that it was a way for us to leverage this data without invading that. So what we are using actually right now is um, edge computing. 
So as, as users are using a website, the website itself knows the traffic, but it really shouldn't know about the traffic being generated elsewhere. So what we do is as users are browsing a specific website, we actually save that, that traffic locally in local storage and we segment them based on that information on the device. And so the event data actually never gets sent up to the cloud. No one else ever sees it. It's only you that has it. And so what we've built is a, a platform that allows publishers to define segments that get sent out to users. So our code's running on billions of devices right now. We have several I only know the numbers for one of our platforms. For Android, we have over 1.7 million user unique users per day coming in, and that's just Android, which is a small fraction of the actual data that we're we're bringing in. That information that's used to um, identify what users might be interested in to determine what ads to show them that's happening on the device. So my team is the Edge platform team. We build the SDKs that are used. We've got web, iOS, Android. Uh, we also have our own query language that we're using on the edge as well. And we use Scala for all of our backend services. Hmm. What's it like to be, you know, I, I know that you used to work for quite a long time in the consulting world. How has that transition to a product company been from like, do you feel like what sort of things do you feel like you're really glad you had the experience of working in the consulting world before going into that space? So consulting is a completely different beast, Right. In consulting, you're, what you're selling is your skills and your time. When you're in a product company, what matters is the value that you bring to the product itself. And so in consulting, it's actually quite high pressure. It can be quite stressful because when you're on a client site, you have to always remember that you are the product. But the good thing about it is within consulting, I got to see so many different code bases, so many different um, teams, so many different companies, and then also hearing about it from my colleagues as well. There's a lot of knowledge transfer that happens within consulting, at least within ThoughtWorks, where learnings from one project can be applied to another project, even if they're, they're very different teams or very different people. And what ThoughtWorks is really, really good at, at is kind of collating that knowledge and sharing it around. And so I think for me, I've definitely developed a much more nuanced appreciation for different kinds of code and different kinds, like di the different code that you see and um, appreciating, you know, how difficult it is to write good code. So a lot of the projects that I worked on were very, very massive legacy code bases when I was in consulting at least. And then we, we kind of had a bit of a playbook where approaching a lot of these legacy projects you can apply a playbook obviously you know it depends in in the world of consulting you know how you apply the specific tools that you have but generally you know it's about getting buy-in from the right people so there's like level of influence that's involved as well and then you know applying the strangler pattern you take a small piece you write it new and you slowly migrate stuff over usually you know these migrations take a lot of time several years. For me personally, I've only, like the longest project I've been on was about 10 months. And so I got to see lots of different snippets of a transformational journey on a lot of different projects. You know, as you think back on your consulting work, you know, as being a guest in a lot of other teams' code bases, what did you learn about that process? How did, what do you believe makes a good guest in another team's code base? I'd probably say 
trying to leave the code better than you found it. For me personally, like joining ThoughtWorks is kind of where I fell in love with doing test-driven development. And that's why I really, really push for TDD. And so it's like, you know, if I'm touching some legacy code, that's not very good. Generally, it's like if I can add some tests around it, add a little bit of confidence around it, add a bit of more clarity, refactor things a little bit, then, you know, I've left a little bit better. And it's also, you know, having like knowing that I am a guest there, it's forced me to really think about how I write my code and how to be like a good citizen. And it, it's made me pay a lot more attention to the quality of code that I write and the quality that my, of code that my teams produce. In those scenarios, when you're as a guest in another team's code base, were you working closely with it, like, like on on the client side? Did they have their own engineering team as well that you were collaborating with? And if so, do you have any steps along the ways or trip ups that you, in in retrospect, might approach differently when how you're interacting with them on a communication and team dynamic level as as a new guest to their software code base? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing with being you know in consulting is having to be careful not to come across as arrogant, which is there, there's a reputation amongst consultants for coming in and being like, Oh, you know, we, we know how to do all the things you should listen to us. And, you know, there are a lot of different kind of team structures that you can have. So if you've got a team that's full of other consultants, it's actually quite easy to get something good started when everyone's aligned and everyone's thinking the same way. And so, you know, in situations like that, it's quite easy to start writing very, very good code. When you are in a situation where you have mixed teams, you know, there's there's different pros and cons, right? With a mixed team, it's a little bit more difficult because you need to take these people on, on the same journey that you've been on. So the journey to agreeing on, you know, good engineering practices, agreeing on different ceremonies, what's effective, what's not, what's a good use of time, what's not. But then the, the um, advantages of having people, like from having client people on the team as well is if you are successful in convincing them of you know what you deem to be strong engineering practices then they're actually able to keep that going and that's actually you know in terms of long-term success is is key so if you have a team of consultants sure they can start off really really well but who's going to continue it when they're gone so there are different ways that you can kind of do that the best way is finding people on the client side who are already bought in and you create an exemplar team and you prove that you can write really good code and you prove that the engineering practices that you're proposing will work. And then you split that team in two and you seed the two next teams with the people from the exemplar team to try and hopefully um, spread that culture out. So there's a certain level of, you know, speaking back to what you're mentioning earlier about maintainable software code base usually has people that are helping anchor it. As a consultant, you might be going in and helping re-anchor that or at least helping the their internal team not only get some code produced by bringing in more people so you can scale up the team for that project but also to help the the client side developers maybe level up or maybe come to some new agreements on how they're approaching their day-to-day work with the coding so that they can continue on that path and have more value than just the number of hours and lines of code that your you as a consulting produces helping them re-anchor themselves if things if they've kind of gone adrift so, you know, coming in, it's about having that level of empathy to understand, you know, where are these bad habits coming from? That's why it's generally, you know, it, it's easier to, you know, use a strangler pattern, you write something new with the good practices in place. You know, if you're doing pairing, if you're doing test room development, if you start off like that, it's a lot easier. 
Like it's very, very difficult to apply test-driven development to a code base that was not designed using TDD. And so like it's understanding, you know, where are the bad habits actually coming from and then finding ways to empower people to create new habits. I know it's it's a bit fluffy, but you know, it really depends on the situation and depends on the people and you know, especially when you've got issues with morale, when it's just like, oh, like this is just this massive thing that I can't do anything about. Like when people feel helpless, then, you know, you're just setting yourself up for failure. So a lot of it as well, it's like, you know, with technical debt, like the more the technical debt there is, the more it's about having like a team effort to pull together and, and try and make things better overall. Yeah, I'm always curious about how when, in those, I'm, I work in the consulting side personally, and when we go into different teams and seeing that there's sometimes there's, you know, it's maybe not necessarily the engineers at the company that we're trying to hire us. It would, it's some management level, like we need to move through, we have some problems, maybe the backlog is kind of log jammed for a while and we need some assistance because the team's struggling for some reason and we need kind of get a fresh set of eyes on the problem. And so we'll come in and we're like, well, it's not that the team is necessarily intentionally doing anything bad it's they feel like maybe the product has been being steered in a certain direction they haven't had time to deal with these things and then maybe they've given up trying to voice those concerns about the technical debt because they're like well i heard not right now a few too many times so when you come in as like a consultant sometimes there's a oh great someone else can potentially help validate the developer's perspective too like oh we see why this is not getting done. It's not necessarily your developers are no longer motivated or no longer interested in doing good things for your software code base. There's just now this contention point where the teams aren't communicating effectively anymore between stakeholders and the developers. And we can come in and help hopefully maybe remove some of that. But it's 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 always an interesting little challenge, I think, to try to diagnose that stuff too. I want to pivot over a little bit to get a little bit more into the weeds a little bit on a, in some process. What are some effective ways that you've seen teams organize maintenance and or technical debt or refactoring type work amongst the product backlog or however your team's working on that? The way I'd probably approach that problem is that you need to make sure you treat technical debt as a first-class citizen. And you need to make sure that the delivery aspect of it, where like the management, the expectations of management delivery aspect, where I would say generally try to spend at least 10% of your delivery time on tech debt. So some of the things that I've seen work really, really well in the past is um, having like a tech time session. So maybe an hour a week where the entire tech team gets together and kind of puts post-it notes up. Perhaps there are post-it notes that they've gathered during the week when, you know, they've been going through different parts of code base and they've identified these bits of tech debt. Having a tech debt wall is very helpful. So the process from start to finish would be, you know, during the week, people are identifying tech debt. You have a tech debt wall that you put up where people gather the tech debt that they found during the week. You have tech time about, you know, an hour a week to go through the tech debt wall and you identify which bits are low-hanging fruit. So what's the value versus effort for each piece of technical debt? Prioritize the low-hanging fruit and then prioritize the bigger pieces and the smaller pieces, to be honest, you just most of the time you throw away, but if you have time, maybe it can be something you give to a more junior developer or maybe an intern to to learn the code base a little bit better. So that's generally what I um, have seen work really well in the past. And the main thing as well is whatever tech debt that you do prioritize from the value versus effort exercise, you actually put it on your backlog and you put it on the wall to make sure that there's visibility of it and you ensure that it gets done. When you've got a really strong kind of team process for delivery, 
it should just be easy to just slot it in. But it's also setting up that that process that that's quite important. Do you find then, and that during that process, are you typically engaging some sort of product owner manager that's not from the technical team that's that understands what those things are? Are you creating like tickets in your backlog or issues or user stories that speak to the business value of those? cleaning up those items or is it you don't feel like you need to get that high level for depending on who the audience of who's reviewing those and prioritizing them so in the ideal situation you do have someone owning the, the product backlog and understanding you know what are the things that we actually want to deliver what are the requirements and making it very clear to the team so you know the the, the less work that the team has to do to clarify things the better because it's it's a bit of a context switch to go from you know executing on a story to trying to clarify requirements. So having someone there to own it is, is very, is very, very helpful. That doesn't happen all the time. Sometimes, you know, the tech lead is one who's, who's creating the backlog. In that case, it's a lot easier to manage the technical debt, but if not, when you do have someone owning it, it's very important to have that relationship and the the communication to say, you know, these are important things for us to be doing. We are cleaning our house to ensure that that actually gets done. Do you find yourself more often on team rewrite or team refactor? Probably team refactor. I understand the appeal of team rewrite. I definitely think that there are certain situations where a rewrite is the right decision, but it really it really depends. Coming in, you kind of have to do that assessment of is this code base actually salvageable? And I I have a tendency to say, you know, let's refactor as much as we can, let's try and make it better because the code base is there. If it's still adding value, you know, you have to kind of balance out how much time will an, an actual rewrite take? How much time would it take to get the current code base to a state that's actually, you know, where, where you're actually delivering value? So for me, tendency to say team refactor, but I can understand the arguments for team rewrite. All right. Yeah. I'm always a little interested in when I haven't met a lot of people that are like, We'll always answer that team rewrite because I think there's always a, the big challenge there. But I think it's always one of those things that seems like maybe this may be a little bit of a developer fantasy. Like, well, if I could just do this myself from scratch, it can make it better this time, right? And, and like as if you won't maybe inherit a lot of the same types of problems again in the next three to five years anyways as your application potentially comes a legacy app again at some point. So that's the, a little bit of a fantasy sometimes, I think. But I, I always think that's something that feels like I notice developers when they kind of reach maybe a certain point in their career where they're getting confident enough with themselves, because I don't think junior developers are usually advocating for that. And I rarely see super, like really experienced senior developers advocate for a full rewrite. So it's kind of like there's this transitional phase I think people tend to go through as software developers. That's just my personal reflection, but what's been your kind of perspective? I think it's it's a bit of a journey, isn't it? Like at this, so for me as a junior when I was a junior developer, I was definitely team rewrite because I'm like, well, I could definitely do this thing better. But then you go through a few of those, and then you actually, you know, you start to realize, I thought I could do it better, but there was definitely a reason why it was the way it was. So actually, maybe I couldn't do it better. So it's like a journey where I feel I feel like people who are on the junior side want to do a rewrite because they're they've got this kind of idealistic view of what the world could be like. And then as you get further along in your career, you realize, actually, the grass is not always greener, you know, shit's there for a reason. And like, even if you were to rewrite it, chances are you're just going to introduce your own legacy code and like whatever, like poor architect architectural decisions that you made. And so if you were team rewrite, like unless you really know what you're doing, if you're like super, super knowledgeable of the domain, 
if you were there from the very beginning and you could rewrite it from scratch, knowing everything, then go for it. But otherwise, you know, if it's working software, it's adding value. When you're rewriting something, the time that you're spent rewriting it is like you're not actually adding any value until it goes live, which is why generally, you know, strangler pattern is the way to go. It's that's kind of the middle ground, isn't it? Where you start writing, like rewriting a little bit of it. And then you slowly like port stuff over and you slowly make things better. And it's kind of that middle ground between like refactor and rewrite. But definitely, I would say, you know, the further along I go in my career, the more against rewrite I am. We'll be back with our interview with Karen in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for listening to Maintainable. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Also, do you know someone in our industry that is speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y maintainable.fm. Also, do you work with Ruby on Rails? And maybe you're a little outdated on your version of Rails that you're running on and need some assistance? Get in touch with us at Robbie at planetargon.com and we can talk about your project. And now, back to our interview with Karen Lee Rigg. Are there specific code-related metrics that you track with your team? With my team currently, not code-specific ones. We do have a lot of product metrics, but what I'm actually looking to introduce is the four key metrics. Being able to measure lead time, deployment frequency, mean time to restore and change fail percentage. So the four key metrics was, um, I think it was in 2018, was in the state of DevOps report, I believe, um, where they found a very strong correlation between doing well in these four key metrics and uh, organizational performance as a whole. So that's actually something I'm pushing right now to measure. What I'd like is for all of our code bases to have these measurements so we can have an understanding of where we sit as a whole in engineering. And then we actually just had a, a meeting a couple of weeks ago to determine the scope of the measurements. So, you know, obviously you can measure this within product as well, but we, we're just doing it within engineering for now. Um, and that's actually something that we're, we're trying to, to push for. Interesting. I know that when you mentioned uh, deployment frequency, anecdotally, are we talking weekly, a couple times a week, multiple times a day? What sort of like the frequency that you're kind of typically aiming for, you think? So in the ideal case, we're able to deploy multiple times per day in terms of highest DevOps performance. Because if you're actually able to deliver value multiple times per day, it means you've got very strong engineering practices to be able to support that. So you've got, you know, a confidence in in your tests, you've got confidence in your your pipelines, you've got confidence in your deployments. So, but then it also depends, right? So the situation on my team. Like I said earlier, we have three main SDKs. We have a web SDK, iOS, and Android. So for web, we are actually able to deploy multiple times per day if we wanted to. Very easy to do. But the interesting thing with SDKs is that a lot of the problems that we see happen when they're at scale. So what we do actually is when we deploy a new version of our SDK, we actually release it to a very small subset of users initially. And we basically just do canary deployments that way. So from that perspective, yes, we can release multiple times per day. The difference then, though, in mobile, in the mobile world is when you release an SDK, that's it, right? You can't, there's no take backs or anything. So you have to be very, very careful with what you release and what you release is set in stone. And so for that, our release cycles are generally like about once a month. 
we'd like to get it down to like once every two weeks, but it's just the, the way that mobile is, is, is not, is not conducive to that. But, you know, to me in the ideal case, multiple times per day is, is ideal. And, you know, you mentioned you're using Canary deploys. Is that fairly automated in your environment or do you have someone seeing how that goes? Like you push it out to X percentage of your user base. And then if things are good for a couple hours or something like that, then it rolls out to the rest of them. How do you manage that on your end? Yeah. So at the moment it's actually manual carry deployment. So, I mean, I would love for us to say, let's deploy to 1% of all users. And then if it goes out, you know, fine, then up the percentage. That's very much the ideal case. At the moment it's quite manual because we basically release our SDK to um, specific customers at a time. So we, we control which version of the SDK a customer's got. So at the moment, it, it is very, very manual where we will pick a smaller customer, test out a change, see how it goes. If it doesn't work, then we roll it back, fix it, and push it out again. And then when we see, you know, oh, it's working for the set of customers, let's roll it off to a bigger set. And then kind of the, the larger um, deployment is... We, we do it manually, but it's an automated deployment to kind of roll the code itself out, if that makes sense. So we just basically, we press the button to say, do the thing. So I want to maybe provide some advice for those listening. So let's imagine that there's a few software developers that have been working in a team for a while, and maybe they're in a product team, and they've, they've had some concerns about the long-term maintainability of their code base, and they've asked, you know, kind of speaking to what we're mentioning earlier related that there's sometimes there's teams that just feel like they've brought up hey we have some issues here with some technical debt they've asked that a handful of times and felt like they got shot down and so they don't bother asking anymore and then, so outside of them maybe feeling like they need to look for a new job at some point where they might be able to be heard what advice might you offer them on how to maybe start reframing how they're approaching their current environment and maybe how they can maybe start taking some action again on addressing those problems so i've got, I've got two sets of advice for that one is the aggressive, bullish approach. And then the other one is more of the collaborative team approach. So with the aggressive, bullish one, I would say if people are not listening to you when you say it's important to maintain your technical debt, then just do it without asking them, right? It's your code base you know, your work, you're the one who has to deal with the mess that that's been left behind. So just give them, you know, a, a long, well, longer estimate. Sorry, it's just, if it takes three days, sorry, it's going to take five days because I need to do some cleanup. Well, don't tell them about the cleanup. That's the bullish answer, right? The collaborative answer is, you know, there's definitely an education piece for understanding the impact of technical debt. And I find generally like, you know, I've used the clean house metaphor, you know, earlier, and that's the one that I find usually hits home where it's like, you know, if you want your home to be a comfortable, clean space, you need to maintain it. And that's the same thing with software. So, you know, you can say, okay, let's say you've got a party coming and your house is a mess. Well, sure. You can just take all of your stuff and just shove it in a closet, but it doesn't mean that the mess is gone, you've just shoved it into a closet. And at some point, you need to go through the closet and clean it out. And so it's much easier and cheaper to just have like a daily tidy up than it is to try and do everything at once. And that that's usually the metaphor that I go for. But obviously, you know, it, it really depends on the bureaucracy, the politics within an organization. If there's too much red tape, then and it's not worth it, then just fucking do it. 
you don't need to ask for people's permission to clean up your house, right? So just clean up the technical debt. Sorry, you know, software is going to take as long as it takes. If you don't like it, then, you know, that's that's nothing I can do anything about. It'll get delivered when it gets delivered. I think there's there's just some definitely some good advice there and I'm always so fascinated when you know you're talking with different teams and developers where there's also this scenario I feel like that happens where you know they're feeling like they haven't been heard for a while and then maybe when you talk to like their product managers or a product owner on their end they'll you know I've heard stories of being like well why why is there a mess I didn't tell them to make a mess along the way and then there's this like, there's kind of like isn't that the developer's responsibility to keep things clean so why is it now my fault for you not doing your job and becomes this weird kind of tension point there. And so it can be difficult to kind of move beyond that. I think, th- I think there is a, there's a balance there. I think people, the developers need to take some accountability for that themselves and know like, Hey, you do actually do have control or sometimes when there's projects where there's not a lot, a lot of test coverage. And then my question to them is like, well, did someone tell you to not write test coverage or did you not include that in your estimates? It's not a, do you perceive it as a separate activity than producing tests while you're you know working on your code? Do you have any advice for those people that are kind of maybe thinking like maybe they're that they could do that themselves? I think I have thoughts on that, right? So like the question being when developers feel helpless, like what do you do in that situation? And and that's a situation where you need a really strong tech lead or a really strong engineering manager. You need someone who um knows how to influence stakeholders to come up and actually stand up for the developers. And it's a very, very different skill set. That's kind of what I found, where it's one thing to be able to write really good code. It's another thing to be able to convince someone that you need to do something. And so in the ideal case, you're able to find someone to be that the, the shit shield. I actually see that as, you know, largely my my job is I'm the shit shield for the team, right? I am the shit umbrella. I protect the team. I ensure that they have the space to do what they need to do. I push back on stakeholders. And generally in situations like that, it's like, you know, developers are missing that person to empower them to say, hey, you know what? It's actually okay to push back on delivery deadlines because it gets done when it gets done. And that's the thing that a lot of, you know, people in the business don't understand. Like they want stuff done, you know, yesterday. That's just not really how it works. And, you know, there's an educational piece there. But for the people who are kind of struggling, the people who are feeling helpless, my advice is to you know, take a step back and understand where that feeling is coming from. And I'd say have a very try and have a very frank conversation with your manager if you feel that it's safe for you to do so. Um, and say, you know what, like I'm struggling with this. I feel like I can't push back and this is preventing me from actually doing a good job. And being really honest about it, you know, I think in the situation where you don't have that level of safety to be able to say that is probably time to go. I think that's a really valuable bit of uh, wisdom there for people, like just to think to leverage your manager, not necessarily needing them to solve all your problems, but to bring and discuss these types of challenges with them, see what you what you could collectively do together or see what they could, as, as you said, uh, they, they can help protect you from the BS that you're dealing with. In a, in a lot of ways, maybe go up to bat for you. I think that is often something that I don't hear enough of, or maybe there's a scenario where there's kind of like a void in that sort of leadership, or there might be a, an engineering lead or a tech lead person that's struggling as a tech lead, maybe because they don't feel like they're contributing as much as they used to as well. And they might be part of that whole 
system or maybe they got promoted from within the team and they were part of the challenge along the way as well. So what sort of struggles did you have through that transition of going from a probably a regular contributor to I'm assuming someone that maybe is not producing code as your primary activity in your day-to-day work? Yeah, so I did the transition from senior to lead two and a half, three years ago. And I found that and this is something I struggle with, you know, today as well. It's like it there are certain parts of it that are really rewarding and certain parts that are very, very frustrating. So I remember the kind of first challenge that I found transitioning from a senior to a lead position is that switch from thinking about doing that one thing to suddenly having to juggle a million things at the same time. I very I remember very, very clearly at the very beginning, I I was just paralyzed. I, I just sat there feeling overwhelmed by the situation of like, I don't know what to do first. There are so many things on my plate. I don't know where to start. And I think that fear is is quite natural and it's quite normal. And it's when you're transitioning, it, it, it's quite a big transition because it's not the, the size of the role. It's not like, oh, being a lead is 20% bigger or even 80% bigger or like 100% bigger. It's probably 500% bigger. Because you suddenly, you're not just, you know, dealing with, okay, I'm going to pick up the story, I'm going to do the story, and I'm going to make sure it gets tested and then push it out to production. That's kind of like a stream of work, right? In the position of a lead, you are managing the people on your team. So if you've got four people writing code, that's four people's code that you need to take ownership of and making sure that it's, you know, of a high quality. Then you need to manage the external stakeholders you need to manage external um expectations and you know it's managing up managing down and then also you know ensuring that the the reputation of your team is kind of intact and then you know especially if you've got if you're in a situation where you've got a very political environment then that's like a whole other thing that adds to it as well and then it's not just your code but you also have to thinking about you know the infrastructure side of things like within the technology itself there's so many different aspects that you need to be thinking about as a tech lead. Um, and it, it's very, very overwhelming. And what I found worked for me, another thing I want to add as well is actually dealing with all, in, in addition to dealing with all of that is also dealing with the imposter syndrome of like, oh my God, like I'm going to get found out. I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing. This is really scary. Like, what the fuck am I going to do? Oh my God. Like you start going into your head, like, okay, I'm going to like completely ruin my career. Like things are going to, you know, they're going to see that I'm this incompetent person and they're never going to let me be a lead again. And actually, you know, all the fear is normal. All the anxiety is normal. All the stress is normal, but ultimately what matters is what you get done. And so the advice that I give to first time tech leads is take all of that fear, take all of that overwhelming stuff and stuff it into a box and put the box away you'll deal with the box later at the moment you know what is in front of you right make a list of all the things you have to do and then start from the top so it took me you know a few projects of being tech lead to feel comfortable with that and kind of figure out um the best way to to overcome it and then once you figure once you figure out your flow then it it becomes a lot easier but and another thing that I struggle with even today is, you know, I don't get to write code anymore. And that's really sad 
because I really love writing code and writing there's, you know, that dopamine hit of like, Oh, I got my test to pass. Like, that's so cool. I don't get to do that anymore. And, you know, I'm lucky if I get to write a little bit of code. And that's actually funny because the last time I did, I was pairing with a colleague, one of my teammates, and we got the test to pass. And I just like squealed with joy because like, oh my God, it's been so long since I had to, got to write tests and tests and it feels really good. And so that's still something I struggle with on a day-to-day basis where like, I am so busy. I am constantly in meetings. I'm constantly trying to get stuff done. And then at the end of the day, I feel like I've got nothing done. And it's really frustrating and it can, it can get really demoralizing, but, you know, obviously there are tips and tricks and techniques to kind of get around that. And what I found can work for me is, you know, at the end of the day, I write down all the stuff that I did. So if you have, you know, stuff that's come out of a meeting, if you have actions, you know, whatever you do, you document what you did that day. And it forces you to think about it of like, you know, I might not be writing code. It might not be you know, immediately satisfying. It might not be immediately satisfying, but actually I am productive. It's just that that feedback loop of the stuff that I'm doing is so much longer than it used to be. And I just need to get used to it. And, you know, having, you know, been in a lead role for several years now, it's still something that I struggle with. And, you know, I still sometimes find myself wanting to write code. But what I actually have found that is that when I do write code, I drop everything else. Because my mind goes from focusing on keeping everything afloat, keeping all the plates spinning to just this one thing, and then things just start to drop out of the sky. So for me, you know, as a lead, what ultimately matters is my team, not me. And so the approach I take is what does my team need? My team doesn't need me to code. My team needs me to keep all these things together. And so I will make time to do a specific task but I will only do it when everything else is sorted. And that's that's kind of um, how I found the transition and, and the continuing transition. I really appreciate you opening up and sharing your story there because I think that's a lot of, it's something that I think a lot of people deal with and then they're in those roles. I've definitely de- come in and out of that a number of times over the years myself. I see it in my people, some of my employees, they struggle with this stuff and I was recently interviewing Camille Fournier, who wrote uh, the, the Manager's Path, who talked a lot about what does it take to become moving up through the ranks of an organization and people really struggling with that. Like, well, I'm not contributing as much on a day-to-day basis. That's how I found my value. And now it's like, what's my value? And it's like, you know, it's it's always this kind of this this challenge of, oh, maybe I can help out there. Like, I'll jump into that code and just take care of it to save the team because they're busy elsewhere. So I'll take care of that one little annoying thing because I have a good idea, but then, yeah, you're right. You end up dropping some other things that are waiting on you because you get that quick dopamine hit. And I deal with that on a regular basis myself too. So I don't think that goes away entirely, but I really appreciate you sharing that there for sure. A couple of quick last questions for you. What non-software development book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in the industry? Probably How to Win Friends and Influence People. I feel like that's quite a classic one. A lot of the times people are all about like me, 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 and they forget to think that, you know, there is a world outside of them and that everyone else is also thinking me, me, me. And I think there are a lot of tips and tricks in that book that can help a lot of developers, especially ones who are in that situation that we talked about earlier, having, you know, very high delivery pressure and not being able to push back. Like there are ways to kind of get around that. And it's about kind of changing that perspective a little bit. And I think that book helps with that a lot. 
there's been a number of uh, guests that have recommended that book, and I read that a number of years ago. So I'll definitely include a link to that in the show notes. Well, with that, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Karen. Thank you so much for joining us and talking shop. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really nice chatting with you.